0: Welcome to the Decent People Podcast, a production of Decentral Media, where we're committed to telling the stories of the founders, builders, and visionaries who are creating a new decentralized economy and internet experience. You guys know it as Web3 or Blockchain, but we're going to bring you the smartest and most interesting people in the space for intimate conversations that reveal their background, how they got into crypto in the first place, and what they're doing today to make a decentralized future a reality. Thanks so much for joining us and check out our site at Decentral.io. Now to the show. Hi, and welcome to the latest episode of the Decent People podcast. I'm your host, Matt Weising. And today I've been looking forward to this conversation um, for quite a while. I'm joined by Eric Tung who is the founder and CEO of Familio. It is a blockchain um, protocol that is concentrating on the root layer of trust that is so important to a blockchain and um, is stripping out other aspects of of the uh, blockchain like application layers and things like that, that we will get into shortly. Eric, how are you? Thank you for being here.
1: How are you too? I'm really great.
0: Good, so, so nice to see you here. Um, I'd love to start, um, for people who don't know you, You, when you were 12 years old, you designed a, a virtual um, uh, a VPN network that was able to evade the, the Chinese government's firewall. Um, I'd love to get into that, but first I, I, I wanna ask you about um, your upbringing and, and tell me where you were born in China and, and what, what you remember about that time in your life.
1: Yeah, definitely. So um, I was born in 1997 in Beijing, in China. And so my upbringing is, um, I guess, a little strange. So uh, for the first two years of my life, I was in China. But then when I was like two and a half, two and a half years old, um, our, whole, our, our whole family uh, moved to Canada to immigrate there. And so when I was... From two to when I was six, I was in Canada. And you know, I went to kindergarten in Canada and like, you know, learned English and things like that there. And um, so when I was six or seven or so, um, my parents moved back to China with me um, because of work reasons and things like that. And, they, um, and I lived in China for the next few years. Um, so in China, I was actually homeschooled. I actually did not go to a single day of school in China mostly because my parents didn't really trust the Chinese public school system. Mm. And um, they raised me kind of um, with Western curriculum, um, mostly in English. What were
0: your parents doing? What were their occupations?
1: Yeah, so um, basically, um, my dad is a project management consultant. Um, My mom used to work as a um, salesperson for Airshow, which is a company that makes um aircraft equipment for like you know um so she would go to airlines and airports and stuff and negotiate deals so like that's kind of what she did and um but by that time like she was mostly a stay at home mom and like helps educate me and things like that when I, when we were living in china and so that was when i was like on um, 6 or 7 or so and we lived in china for um i lived in china up until i was like um like 13 or 14 or so. Um, obviously we traveled a lot in the period. We often went back to Canada to, you know, see friends, friends and like deal with things in Canada and things like that. So I feel like in my childhood, I felt like I was, I both grew up in China and in Canada, so to speak. And, um, yeah, I guess that's how I was brought up. And I went to, was there,
0: um, did you, had you gotten used to Canada by the time you went back as like a six-year-old? Was it, was it weird to now? Uh,
1: like the thing is really that like uh, somewhat, I guess it's, it's pretty different, but I, I would actually say kind of like back then China wasn't too different kind of from Canada. I mean, it was rapidly developing in Canada, was it? And that was kind of the biggest, biggest impression I had at first, that kind of like every time I went back to China, it was different, but every time I went back to Canada, it was the same. <laughs> but like, yeah. um, you can understand like early 2000s, China was a really quickly changing place. Um, And yeah, I I did feel like it was quite different, but um, I I think like, you know, one big difference is definitely like um, just the whole culture is obviously very different, um, but I think like actually when I was small, I didn't notice the difference too much because like I typically, yeah, as I said, I didn't feel like it was way too different at first at least. And
0: as you got older, when you spent those like six or seven years back in China from like six yeah. to about 13 or so, was, was government repression getting worse? Like what was the, what was the um, climate like or like were your parents getting worried or
1: what was that sort of like as you recall? Yeah, so definitely like it was getting worse in the sense that I so in the early 2000s, China re- really felt like it was catching up to the world, right? It was opening up. It was kind of like the whole climate is, yes, it's not a democracy, etc. But everybody knows that the US, Canada has a better system. We want to be like them. We want to be more capitalist, have more free markets, and have more freedom of the press, etc. But really kind of like um, towards the 2009, 2010 or so, it kind of really started going the other direction. Um, I think, like, the, the biggest thing I, as a little kid, really noticed was that the Great Firewall of China really came up around 2009. So, previously, China did have some really light kind of internet censorship and surveillance systems, but you never really noticed them. It's not like they blocked any major websites, they just blocked, you know, maybe political dissidents' web pages and things mm-hmm. like that. But, like, In 2009, it was suddenly websites like YouTube and like Facebook and stuff getting blocked. And it was like, um, that was a really big shock to me. And it's not just to me, but to lots of people back in China back then, because those websites were really popular in China before they were blocked. Like, China was getting more and more integrated kind of into the global internet ecosystem, almost. And then suddenly, kind of like this huge hammer came down, and um, all these most common websites were blocked. So that's really kind of what really made me feel like, okay, maybe China's not going in the right direction. Maybe like, you know, it's actually a very different society. It's not simply kind of less developed, but going in the same direction. And um, in fact, it's kind of like the development of more advanced technology that let them do this almost. And so that, that, that's kind of a big turning point kind of in my own personal experience, so to speak.
0: Yeah. It's, um... It's interesting, it's, it's kind of obvious that they would want to um, limit political speech or just exposure of, of Chinese citizens to outside thought, you know, or, or what yeah. the rest of the world is doing. But I also wonder, do you think they were also trying to create um, a national market for for companies to like then fill in that void
1: well of course like part, like definitely and i think you can't separate these because kind of like the whole chinese economic model is really kind of a pseudo capitalism where all the successful companies succeed because they're tightly connected with the government essentially so uh, of course they would want to block all the outside competition but i would actually say that's probably secondary because like um you know china has always been kind of protectionist like. economically but really they only started doing this kind of really hard censorship and things like that because of political reasons it was definitely kind of a change in the general political climate in China since around 2009 or so
0: and did your family feel it personally did you were you did you feel um persecuted in any way or like you know yeah
1: I mean like it's hard to say right like there are different like I think the thing about China that's kind of interesting actually that i thought is that the it's not a typical kind of despotic regime where you know the there's a central government that just uses brute force to control everybody um instead kind of like there's always this illusion that for the average consumer or like middle class person that they live a fairly normal life it's just that all the important institutions are co-opted by the state. so um so it really depends is because the thing is actually like so my so my my mom used to be kind of like a business person right and did lots of like um um made lots of money doing sales for airline like airplane parts and things like that but kind of by by that time like she wasn't doing that work anymore so kind of like the drastic changes in kind of how the economy worked didn't really impact her family too much but that was really the the main levers in which the Chinese exerts its influence, so to speak, like if you talk to like any business people operating in China, they would definitely feel like, oh my gosh, the government control is increasing like crazy. But kind of like your average person actually doesn't see all that much, especially back in that time. Now it's a little different. Now like people are genuinely scared of whether they say the wrong things on social media and things like that. Back then it was like at most post gets deleted and nobody mm. really cares yeah. so like um i think like um and that that's like kind of on a one aspect but definitely on the other aspect um i think like we were definitely really alarmed at how kind of like china is going back into the direction of like controlling ideology and controlling like what information people have access to so for example like our family is actually are we're actually all christians so that's officially banned in China, but but kind of like previously it was like de facto, okay, nobody really cared about what you believed. But, um, you know, after kind of this kind of shift in political climate, you definitely see more kind of like propaganda against like subversive ideologies and kind of like ostracism on social media and um, obviously also more heavy-handed things like people getting going to jail or you know people um, getting banned from all this social media networks and stuff but like um, you definitely get the sense that kind of like they don't have the resources to just crack down by brute force because that's also not just not the best way they can do it, but they kind of exert their influence by making it look making what they're doing look kind of organic, which is really kind of scary. And you sometimes I sometimes see kind of like trends in that direction in Western societies too. And you know, it does alarm me quite a bit, this this kind of whole category of social engineering, so to speak.
0: Is there a preferred religion of the Chinese Communist Party, or is it more oh, in line it's with... It's like
1: state atheism, right? So, yeah, so I was
0: going to say it's more like the USSR Soviet style where there's... Yeah, no yeah. And of
1: course, like, they have, like, an official, like, state-supported Christian church, which is basically fake. <laughs> but, like, um, so, so it, it is quite similar to the USSR, although perhaps a little less extreme. So since I feel like the Chinese government is definitely very pragmatic, right? Like, they... They just do whatever control tacti- tactics work. It's not like they're really committed to some particular ideology.
0: Okay. Yeah. So you mentioned the Great Firewall of China, which of course is their um, ability to censor internet content um, for people in mainland China. Yeah. You created um, a virtual privacy network, a VPN yeah. when you were 12 years old. Um, can you please tell us, like, what is a virtual privacy network and how does it like in simple terms, how does it work?
1: Yeah. So, so it's, VPN really stands for virtual private network, but basically um, what that is, is very simple. You basically like you, instead of connecting to the internet normally, you encrypt your traffic and send it to the VPN provider, which is outside China uh, through some, you know, black magic basically. Um, And that, that makes it very difficult for the government to actually tell that you're using a VPN. And then the VPN provider, talks to the internet for you and go tunnels this information back to you so the, kind of like this is the general idea so back when i was 12 i didn't really make like a vpn from scratch right back then i really didn't know how to program all that well i kind of just pieced together things and made a a browser called YASVIP that integrated a vpn including some other things and um but yeah like i was always interested in vpns because if you live in China and you want access to the free internet that's like a very much a daily necessity and um it's actually like you know here in the west people use VPNs too for things like I don't know watching other countries Netflix and things like that but like the kind of VPN you need to actually use the internet properly in China and kind of it's quite different right because we don't try to block VPNs here, but China actually devotes a lot of research efforts into kind of like technologies to identify VPN traffic and block that. And kind of sustainably having your VPN work in China is really difficult. So the VPN I built back and t- back when I was 12 obviously wouldn't work anymore, right? So I, I kind of like building this VPN has been kind of my perennial side project, so to speak. So I still run a VPN it's called Geff. GEPH, I built it into like a startup. It has like tens of thousands of users now. And it's one of the only VPNs, commercially viable VPNs that work in China based on kind of like cutting edge traffic obfuscation. um, It's
0: it's funny, I would imagine now these days in the US, um, VPNs are probably used in large part for crypto trading to get offshore, (laughs) uh, which is kind of funny. But was there something back then when you were 12 that like pissed you off and made you want to create that browser with the VPN? Was it like they took away your Facebook or something? Or was yeah, there like
1: Yeah, definitely. Right? I mean, it really did impact my life because like I had a very kind of international um, internet life, so to speak. Like uh, most of my time was spent on Western websites. And I immediately kind of looked up how do you get across blocking when they started blocking it. So like kind of like... That was very natural for me. And why did I want to make my own new also just because I always was very interested in technology and computers and things like that. And this whole China blocking websites thing really made me see that even though China used technology to do all these evil things, we can actually also build mechanisms to defend security privacy and freedom from these bad uses of technology and we do that with um using technology to to build tools right and that kind of really motivated me to you know dive deeper into cs like computers and um build these tools myself and that kind of has been driving everything i've been doing ever since then like building technology yeah. to actually defend a better society
0: so yeah is- that, that's a that's a wonderful way to put it um you are a white hat hacker before you even knew it
1: <laughs> yeah but
0: yeah. um and so did you share this um your your vpn browser sort of thing with, with other people in china yeah of care? course
1: like i mean i posted it on forums <laughs> that had my friends use it and things like that but like it didn't get anywhere like I wasn't famous or anything. So, yes. um, but like, yeah, it's like open source. Even now, if you look up YASFIB, Y A S F I B, you can even find it now, like in some GitHub archive that, yeah, like, that's cool. Some years back. So,
0: and when did your family then leave China again?
1: Yeah. So, um, it's when I went to school in Canada, I went to like a um, university at um, the University of Waterloo. Uh, I was like 14 at that time. So, our whole family, Went back to Canada while I was in undergrad, so like for the next three years or so. But then after that, my parents um, returned to China while I stay here,
0: stay Okay. Here. What year? Um. What year? What year you, what years did you start in Waterloo?
1: Huh. Yeah. You see, I, I don't remember dates super precisely. I actually had to look up all these dates before, um, interview today. But I, I believe it was like two thousand um. I believe it was 2012 or 13, yeah. like something. Okay. like
0: Okay, so you might have been there. I'm sure you know this, but Vitalik Buterin, the inventor of Ethereum, yeah. Waterloo was he, he was right around that time too.
1: Yeah, I think so. Did you um, did you I, know him there or see I don't, him? There? I don't think I ever met him.
0: <laughs> ah, okay, that's a funny coincidence. It, it is. Um, and then so now you're like Waterloo is in Ontario, I believe. Uh, about about 100 miles or so outside of Toronto, yeah. or, I don't know, kilometers um, <laughs> as they do up north. Um, so what are you, now you've always had this interest in computer science and and networks, I think, and, yeah. and these, these sort of the, uh, the connections. So what are, you, what are you getting into at Waterloo and computer science? And are you already into crypto? Is that something, or did you discover it? Like, when did you discover that side of computers?
1: Yeah. So I think like I was very attracted to kind of like computer security in general. So like cryptography, access control, network security, all that kind of thing. And um, that that was kind of definitely what really interested me um, at Waterloo. So I, 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 I during undergrad, um, I continued kind of my security, privacy related side hobbies, so to speak. And then when I went to the PhD program at Waterloo immediately after undergrad, um, I really wanted to do research in kind of privacy preserving um, network communication systems like Tor and things like that. Mm-hmm. So um, that was actually kind of what um, my original research interest was in, like that kind of um, privacy and anonymity. And um, how I got into cryptocurrencies and blockchain is kind of like secondary. It's weird. Basically what happened was I was building these um trying to build an end-to-end encrypted, decentralized, privacy-protecting, like, Tor-like network, basically. Mm -hmm. And the difficulty I encountered was that, how can you make it completely decentralized but still secure? And that's very difficult because um, generally you need some kind of central trusted party to bootstrap all the security, to kind of everybody trusting that so that they can trust each other, so to speak. So that's kind of when I discovered like blockchains and more specifically Bitcoin and I felt like okay this is going to be the solution to this problem like we're going to not have this problem anymore in the future because we have blockchains now. And I actually published some papers on embedding like naming systems and identity systems onto the Bitcoin blockchain Um, and that's it's interesting if you it. think
0: about it, like with even with blockchain or Bitcoin, excuse me. Yeah, it was centralized when it was just you know Satoshi and Hal Finney, you know, kind of right. like it, it. So, but then it had the wonderful mechanism of like as, as more miners come on and more you know yeah, nodes come yeah, on, it just then it right. then it becomes decentralized through the natural incentives of wanting yeah, to it, earn the, Bitcoin. The,
1: the thing about Bitcoin and kind of blockchains that I really found interesting is not really that they're decentralized because. Kind of like decentralization by itself is not that interesting. Like you could always get more people to join and have them vote or something, right? You could have Congress run a blockchain and technically it's decentralized across all the voters in the US. That's not very interesting basically. But what's really interesting about Bitcoin is I think it's not even that it's decentralized, but it's self-incentivizing, right? Like it has a mechanism that incentivizes all these people to do the right thing to actually uphold the security of network and this means that ultimately you're not actually trusting the people running Bitcoin at all because you don't need to trust them you know that they're going to do the right thing because Bitcoin's paying them to do the right
0: thing yeah you're
1: actually trusting Bitcoin
0: yeah they're, they're incentivized to be rational
1: yeah they're like they're, they're like this like impersonal protocol is like your root of trust and that's what I found so revolutionary about blockchain technology that we don't even see in any kind of other decentralized network, including things like BitTorrent or, you know, PGP keys and things like that, because they're not self-incentivizing, they're not sustainable. But blockchains, they are secure, and the security is based on self-incentivizing the correct behavior rather than trusting that somebody will just do the right thing. So I felt like, okay, if I'm going to build, like, the next, like, Tor or something like that, I better... Um, build it on top of blockchains but eventually I kind of got disappointed with the way blockchains are right now I think like they really kind of miss out on the full potential of this revolution of trust because they kind of leave leave all sorts of backdoors for trusting people and not having an immutable protocol so the most blatant one is of course blockchain protocols need to upgrade all the time and somebody has to coordinate the upgrade. So ultimately, you're essentially trusting this community consensus procedure that decides on the upgrades. So you're still trusting people, although indirectly.
0: Yeah, and just so listeners know that that would just come through upgrading, updating the software, you know, to a yeah. next the next version. It might include yeah. a hard fork. It might not. Um, so, but everyone on the network needs to be on the same version of the software right. so that yeah, its consensus can be reached.
1: Yeah, and especially kind of like hard forks and things like that require everybody to upgrade at exactly the same time, right? And that requires some kind of like governance procedure, right? Mm -hmm. So, and there's other smaller things like, for example, how Bitcoin's whole mining incentives don't actually work as well as originally designed. So, it, de facto, Bitcoin works because the miners agree out of band not to attack each other, basically, not to kind of like take over 51%. We're going to do selfish mining, that kind of thing. Um, is, that also-
0: because, is that because it's become centralized? more
1: concentrated is what i mean. not exactly actually it's really because the original incentive design wasn't perfect there were some game theoretical issues with it basically and like there is a lot of research done in this area too like basically there are strategies that let's say if you're a miner with 33 percent of the vote you can do that would harm other miners would benefit yourself Mm -hmm. and you're essentially trusting all the miners not to do this due to like a gentleman's agreement so to speak not to hurt bitcoin but like Again, the idea is that the stability of these systems end up relying, at least partly or heavily, on trusting a certain group of humans rather than trusting an impersonal mechanism, and yeah. I think that really kind of damages the um, ultimate value proposition of blockchains and luxury. So I decided to make my own. Right? <laughs> That's how, how I how I like really got the idea of let's make a new blockchain and familio is actually like my phd thesis topic so
0: that's really funny because that's basically the same process that vitalik went through with bitcoin he wanted it to do more he figured out you just can't it's just not it's not there it's not in the language so he decided to make his own blockchain and that's where ethereum was born yeah um so you were only, I think, what, fourteen years old when you started at Waterloo as an undergrad. Is that yeah, correct? That's true. That's yeah. that. So you're incredibly young. And then, how how old are you now? And you're I'm about to defend your you're about to defend your PhD, correct?
1: Yeah, I'm twenty three.
0: Yeah. Wow. do you think being that young has given you any advantages or disadvantages with with what you've been doing? Huh.
1: I mean, I think like. I think, like, objectively, it's mostly advantages, honestly, because I feel like um, I kind of like it's not really about being young per se, but more like I think I, ever since I was, you know, a kid, I got to focus a lot on things I really enjoyed and things I'm actually really good at. And I feel like kind of being homeschooled in China really helps with that, as in I could learn things at my own pace and um, not be kind of fixed to like your typical. Um, school schedule, so to speak. And so I guess ever since I was small, I, I was never exactly the same age as my peers too. So I think that also helped As in Ever since a younger age, I really learned to interact with really different kinds of people. While well, I feel like um, if I had gone to college at a more kind of regular age, so to speak, I would mostly only have interacted with my classmates and like, it, it will be a different experience definitely. I feel like, although kind of personally, like, um, it did make it kind of easy for me not to hurry up as much because I feel like, you know, I have my whole life in front of me, but like, um, in personality wise, I'm definitely not kind of like your typical kind of Silicon Valley. I'm working 16 hours every day person. So like, I feel like, um, it's something I, I I've been really working to change, but I think that like, um, if I could relive it, I would pretend like I'm you know, five years older than I actually am and compare myself to others that way. And that would have been better.
0: Are you in, are you in Chicago now?
1: Yes, I'm in Chicago now. How do you think
0: that that there's a good crypto scene in Chicago, a pretty good technology scene, Mm -hmm. but like you said, it's definitely not Silicon Valley. How is that influencing what you're doing with um, Familio and just, just in in Uh. general terms?
1: I mean, I actually don't feel like I'm really part of the crypto scene here. Like I don't know a single crypto guy in Chicago, actually. I think like they're out there. (laughs) I feel like, you know, I actually don't really feel too much in kind of the crypto scene, so to speak, so to speak, because I didn't come from it, I came from an academic background. And um so, you know, people often ask me, Oh, did you hear about that new DeFi protocol? Are you going to like invest some money and earn some yields?" I'm like, Oh, I've heard of it once, but I haven't looked into too much about it. Like, I'm not really into that scene, you know, like, um, I think like that, that's, that's actually like been quite interesting because I think that's really influenced how Thamelio turned out because Thamelio is really orthogonal to all the trends and all the problems that people think are the biggest problems in crypto. It's like kind of pointing out this more fundamental issue that how can we actually have endogenous trust again? And um, yeah,
0: let's let's dive into that. Um, so, tell me in simple terms. It feels like Familio is stripping out a lot of the the, the higher level um, yeah. or higher level uses of a blockchain for just that really shared trusted yeah. layer. Can you, can you just tell us more about that?
1: Yeah, so so basically what you said is exactly correct, right? So Familio's whole like whole goal is how can we make a blockchain that's a useful and any application can actually use it and b um, doesn't ever need to change. So those seem to be conflicting goals here, right? Because on one hand, you have blockchains like Bitcoin that don't change often, that are simple, but it's kind of useless. All you can do with Bitcoin is Bitcoin and maybe like lightning and stuff, but you can't do much with Bitcoin. On the other hand, you have blockchains like Ethereum that continually need upgrades. Like the whole upgrade schedule is like a whole like ecosystem-wide calendar almost. And, It it is general, but it's also very complex, very fragile, and doesn't have nearly as strong endogenous trust as a result. Um, And my answer is that the same solution for, the correct solution for generality is actually the correct solution for security as well. And the correct solution in both cases is to decouple from the application, to have a really small and elegant blockchain that has like, a few very simple features that can act as a root of trust, but not necessarily as like a full featured application platform. So I think an analogy might make this much more clear. So with communications, right, like telecom, before we had the internet, we had all these complex vertically integrated systems like the phone network. It had one job, it was a phone network. You called people with it. (laughs) Right? Like the whole thing was centralized and it had a one big top-down plan of all the parts, right? And all the protocols were designed for this one purpose. And every time you wanted to upgrade it, for example, you want to uh, make the voice quality better, or you want to switch to digital instead of analog phone lines, then it's like a massive uniform infrastructure upgrade from the middle, from the top to the bottom, right? Yeah. Um, so, the internet really changed everything because it had this one simple, incredibly general protocol called the internet protocol. And the internet protocol is like ridiculously decoupled from applications because if you actually see what it does, it doesn't mention web pages, it doesn't mention phone calls, it doesn't mention video calls. All it does is get a piece of data from this IP address to this other. A IP address. And it doesn't even guarantee how fast it'll get there. It doesn't even guarantee whether it'll get there or not. It can drop packets when things are overloaded. Uh, it's like ridiculously simple. But the idea is that because it's so simple, it doesn't need innovation inside it for applications to grow. You can just build more and more applications using this and layer on kind of these other protocols on top while the basis of the innovation is incredibly stable. Like we're still using IPv4, which came out in 1983, I believe. It's the same exact protocol from 1983 that we're still using because it is so general. And you see that by being so small and decoupled from the application, it's both really general. um, And that really spurred so much more telecom innovation than before the internet. And on the other hand, it doesn't need to change. Uh, all that innovation doesn't require committees coming together and decide okay how can the internet support social networks right nobody needed to uh, figure that out yeah. um, the users of the internet figure out figure it out for themselves so like um, and that's I think like what I think a blockchain should be like because on one hand the blockchain needs to be really general you want all sorts of applications from you know, communication applications you know nfts or you know games and things like that you want them to have endogenous trust where it makes sense right you want to um have let's say assets that other people can't see you want to have censorship resistant um communications and things like that so you need it to be fully general but on the other hand for blockchains um you know You can't change it because if you keep changing it, it defeats the whole purpose. You're still trusting whoever's changing the blockchain. And so I think like for a blockchain to succeed, it has to not change. It has to become like an IPv4-like de facto permanent protocol. So the solution here is obviously be like the internet, decouple from applications and be really simple. So that's kind of like how Familio came to be.
0: We were talking earlier about incentives and how yeah. like the incentives are aligned for, for people, miners, for example, on Bitcoin to act yeah. rationally. Where's the incentive here for people? Like how do you, in Familio, how do you get people, or what is the mechanism there for, for um, you know, it sounds like you're taking miners out of the equation. And is there, is there a simple way of just explaining how
1: yeah so familio is based on proof of stake right so um a lot of other blockchains use proof of stake too i mean ethereum is switching to proof of stake too right um so the basic difference is really that here we don't have miners but instead people deposit um a, a proof of stake token in familio that token is called sim and it's kind of like voting shares almost they deposit that and they participate they get to participate in the kind of central incentive and consensus mechanism okay and then
0: if they validate the latest batch of transactions they get yeah. some of the coin just in like other proof of stake systems they they
1: they they, they get fees mostly actually mm-hmm. so like the one interesting difference is that in familia we designed the whole system so that most of re- of the revenue for the stakers come from usage fees not from my not from inflation and, and like this really aligns the incentives between the users of the blockchain who pay the fees and um, the providers, which are basically this the people who um, stake the coins. So, like a key insight here is kind of like how can we make like the users, the customers of the stakers, so to speak. And that really kind of like through this kind of fee-based model, we do that. And, and that's really important because if you look at blockchains like Bitcoin, there's always kind of like this rift in, of interests of miners versus people who actually use Bitcoin. And they often kind of, this causes lots of drama. This leads to all sorts of kind of like governance attempts trying to kind of like take power from the other party, etc. So you really want, incentive mechanism that's really robust and um aligns everybody's interest in order to credibly have like an immutable governance free trustless blah 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 base layer otherwise like you know all these different people would probably most likely find some way of coordinating into factions and fighting each other with politics so to speak by trying to man- manipulate the protocol
0: and are you um how does the language work? Like, this, like uh, obviously, in Ethereum, Solidity is the language that is yeah. the smart contracts are written in. It sounds like you want to be this base layer for almost any blockchain-based yeah. application. So how are you working through that when, when different blockchains use different languages?
1: Yeah, so again, right, Familia's whole point of view is that we're using blockchains the wrong way right now the blockchains shouldn't be these world computers that you just write solidity programs on mm-hmm. directly. So to reflect this, um, Familiar does have a very different data model and that ne- necessitates a very non-solidity like language, right? So we have a language common loaded on that is like purely functional and um, and it, it kind of feels almost like Haskell, not really, but like it's dependently typed and it just, the kind of programs that are easy to write in it are not easy to write in Solidity and vice versa. And it all reflects that it's a very different kind of blockchain. And a valid question is how then will people use it when it's so incompatible with Solidity and Ethereum and all of that? And I feel like that's kind of the same question as asking how will anybody use the internet if the internet protocol can't let you call people, right? And the whole point is that you're not gonna be using Familio to write your CryptoKitties game. You're going to be making some layer to roll up or some um, off-chain settlement system that uses very simple contracts on Familios to ground security. And then you write your CryptoKitties game in Solidity or in whatever language you want on that layer. And um, just like when you make a website, where you make phone calls, you're not going to, going to be manually writing IP packets, right? You're going to be using some software that then uses the, um, the underlying technology.
0: Yeah, okay, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, where do you where do you see things headed right now? I know you've, sounds like you've got your head down in Familio, but, um, um, I know that you've also, I read some of what you guys are doing and, and you're talking about having um, bridges, you know, to other other blockchains like Ethereum or Solana. There's been some, already some pretty gnarly security yes. breaches on bridges. I, I, I'm worried or wonder how, if, if all these different blockchains are now kind of developing, how they can all sort of work interdependently, or if that's, I don't know if that's even what people want but um, I'd just love, love to hear your, your thoughts on where you think that's yeah. all headed.
1: So on bridges getting hacked, it's really because existing bridges are generally designed in such a way that they have like a certain set of trusted parties that relay the information between the blockch- blockchains. Mm-hmm. So if you compromise their keys, et cetera, then you can hack the bridge and everything, you know, everything goes down the drain. So the bridges we plan to deploy are very different. Um, They are one of the few trustless bridges um, in the DeFi space, where basically when you, you will be able to move, for example, Mel, which is our native currency from our blockchain to Ethereum. Wraps has an ERC-20 contract, but then the wrapping contract isn't actually controlled by a trusted party or Oracle. Instead, um, the wrapping contract actually directly validates um, the familial blockchain and the, th- the familiar unwrapping contract it verifies the Ethereum blockchain. And we can do this because it's just smart contracts on both ends, right? We can write the requisite code to do this. Um, and what we get is essentially, as long as our code is correctly written, we will obviously you know, hire some third-party audits and things for that. As long as the code is correctly written, there's no way that you can hack it because like, it's not like you can compromise a key and take over the system.
0: Yeah, okay, understood. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating that getting into the, the the heart of what we're talking about is the, the, like we said, the real breakthrough with Bitcoin was that it was now you it was trustless. You didn't have mm-hmm. to trust anybody on the other side of the world to send your coins um, to and that and then, what you're talking about here with Familio is just sort of like taking that and and just putting it on steroids um which is a a really interesting uh uh, i think approach and and it's something that i I, you've really opened my eyes to it
1: yeah because i think like if web3 is really going to take off it needs this because that's the whole thing that distinguishes web3 from web2 so i think like now like just to kind of like drive this point home a little bit more i feel like now people don't realize how big of a problem security and trust is in web3 because because honestly the crypto community are, is generally very homogenous in its you know ideology and views they're pretty much all kind of like you know um libertarian technologists right so like they're they they're not going to they do kind of they're all on board with the idea for example of bitcoin of like sending money across the world without somebody's permission. Now, the problem is that if Web3 is actually going to become mainstream, then you can't count on the community having the right um, values, so to speak, because you could definitely have a world where let's say 10 years from now, Web3 really b- blows up. All the finance is done through DeFi. All the governments governed through DAOs. Let's say it's like just, just like a maximalist vision like that, right? And then, I don't know world war three happens or massive the next great depression happens and then i don't know some world's power wants to take over ethereum's governance in order to bail somebody out or fix the smart contract right so like if you if a case like that happens then without a very strong protection against any kind of governance, it's not credible that Web3 would stay decentralized and stay trustless. You'll be, it will become dependent on kind of the majority voices in the community that may or may not be aligned with actually the, the original values of Web3. So instead, um, what Emilio tries to make is it tries to build a blockchain that first of all, just by design doesn't need governance. So people would never expect to um, do any kind of good or bad upgrade to the network and kind of, foster an ecosystem that would make changing the protocol really really difficult it's kind of like how even if world war three happens we are not going to change the internet protocol too many right because right if if i'm yeah.
0: understanding you without any governance changes the immutability is paramount
1: yeah absolutely and the whole ecosystem would depend on that you know you would imagine like blockchain clients just being hard-coded into like embedded devices and things like that right so you basically, um, in such a world, even if 80% of the community due to some kind of ideology or whatever, really wants to do some harmful change to the blockchain, it's not gonna happen because of these social and technological forces. Just like, you know, we've actually been trying to get rid of IPv4, right? We've been trying to switch to IPv6 ever since the 1990s, but the predominant protocol we use is still IPv4 because of all of this ecosystem around
0: it. Yeah, well, Eric, that's a great place to leave it. Thank you so much for taking the time to explain all this and um, fascinating stuff you're doing with Emilio. Mm -hmm. And um, also check out GEF if you are looking for a hardcore VPN, Um, it is out there. And uh, Eric, best of luck to you uh, and thank you so much for being here.
1: You too. that's it
0: for this episode of decent people thanks so much for listening check the show notes for more information on our guests today and make sure to look us up on the web at decential.io. that's d-e-c-e-n-t-i-a-l.io and on twitter at decential. have a great day